Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Yes, GodPod number 50-something. Um, we've lost count. <laughs> it's around like my age. It's 50-something, but I've lost count. <laughs> Exactly. So we've no idea what number this is. It's something like 53 or 54. But um, uh, anyway, we are. Uh, it, it kind of feels very traditional today. Uh, if you've been listening to Godpod for a long time, you'll know that uh, in the beginning, uh, there were three of us. There was uh, Jane. Hello. Good morning. There was Michael. Hello. And there was me, Graham, Graham Tomlin. And um, we used to sit around a table and uh, eat biscuits and drink coffee. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. It's like kind of a tritheistic view of creation, isn't it? In the it beginning, right. <laughs> there were three. That's right. And uh, we have no guests today, just the three old stages for Godpod. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so we're, we're, we're back again after a long summer. So, um, Michael, very nice to see you. Thank you. Yes, I've been slaving away um, about evil over the summer. Yeah, that's right. I study leave to study evil. Oxford seemed the obvious place to do it. <laughs> and you've uh, you've actually written something, haven't you? I have written some. Uh, yes, yes. Not to hold your breaths, but um, I, I've I've made some progress on on writing up my book on the problem of evil. So, so listeners to Godpot who've uh, enjoyed your musings on evil over the the years can look forward to a treat in the years to come. They they can start saving up now. Yes. <laughs> Because the book on evil will emerge. It, it should do. The definitive book. <laughs> Probably all, not. All you wanted to know about evil. And a lot you didn't. <laughs> for Mike Lloyd. And um, Jane, is, um, Jane is gearing up for um, a, a, a guest who's coming to visit tomorrow. Um, in fact, we, we, we are actually, if you're, whenever you're listening to this, we are actually um, recording this in, um, I think it's September, isn't it? September 2010. And um, the Pope... Uh, has just arrived in, um, in in Britain. We did try to get him onto the God Pod, but he was busy, I think, for these days. He was a little days. busy, yes. But, um, but Jane, is, you, are, you are actually meeting him tomorrow, aren't you? Yes, indeed. He, one of the things he's going to do is come and visit um, and have a chance to meet the uh, the Anglican bishops of England and Wales. Yeah. yeah. And is that chez vous? That, that's at our house, yes, it mm. is. Yes. Very good. This won't go out before the event, obviously, so there won't be security implications. No, and I think his, his, his route has been very highly publicised mm. anyway. Oh, so, OK. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those little landmark moments, isn't it? Because we were talking earlier about how different it was from, say, the last Pope when mm. John Paul II came and how um, there was a great sort of sense of celebration and all the Catholics turned up, massive masses in the open air and... Sort of, you know, it was all after the downfall of communism and the sense of, you know, him having played a key role in that. And and uh, the mood now is very different, isn't it? It's just it there's a sense different. of real kind of critique of the Catholic yeah. Church and and all the sort of uh, child abuse scandals and and and, and the, the kind of vehemence against religion. Just just shows how how much things have changed in that in that time. It's very interesting, I think. It is, and it is. I mean, it is as you say, partly um, Catholic specific, but I think it is much more widely. Um, a sense of of um, anger about religion in general, a feeling that people have a right to protest about it. There has been a growth in um, secularism and atheism mm. in that time, and it is a very interestingly different yeah. climate. What, what, what do you put that down to? What do you think are the main causes of that shift in mood from the time the last papal visit to this one? Well, I wonder if it isn't something about... Um, the growth of the church, actually, this mm. is actually I mean, in in the sixties, 
70s, there was a kind of sense intellectually that religion was not credible, um, the whole intellectual climate was against it, uh, whereas now intellectually it's got much more able defenders academically and intellectually. Mm. Um, it's growing across the world in a way that perhaps it wasn't mm. then. And it's more of a threat. Mm. And, and people are actually more vocal against it because you know you, you don't bother to attack something you think is dying. Yeah. And people in the 60s, 70s mm. thought it was dying and they're quite clear now that it isn't. Yeah. And I suspect it's, it's something, as Jane was saying, it's, it's broader than a Catholic thing. It's a more general Christian thing. It's actually in some ways broader than Christian. I think, I think it's more it is, yes. a, a general antipathy to religion, yeah. partly because... Partly because you know, the positive side, as you say, Mike, that, that that faith and religion is a much more vital presence in in society now than it it was in in the past. In that now a lot of the sort of big political visions of the future of the world they've sort of fallen apart. No one really believes in Marxism anymore. No one has any great sort of commitment to um, to the sort of big political visions of the 20th century. Now the thing that shapes sort of world politics and and, and um, <clears throat> world events arguably is much more religious than it is political. And um, now that's negative as well as positive, positively that religion is, is a stronger presence. It's also we're much more aware of the, the dangerous effects of religion because I guess 9-11 I think is all part of this story as well, that what 9-11 did was to suddenly wake people up to the, re the realisation that religion can make do people do some quite damaging things as well as some quite amazingly positive things. And um, so that reaction against religion, I think, has been partly in in re in, uh, in response to this 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 uh, you know renewed um, sense that religion is a is a very powerful force within the world for good, but also sometimes for evil as well. I, I feel for the, those reasons really quite sad that um, that so much of our Christian witness is being derailed by. Um, internal issues, given yes. that we have yeah. a number of Christian leaders now who really are equipped, as Pope Benedict is, to speak yeah. to the world about mm. um, the values of faith uh, versus secularism. Yeah. I think <clears throat> things like the abuse scandal that the Catholic Church is dealing with, things like the, uh, the issues that are dividing the Anglican Communion, yeah. I feel so sad that they are yeah. Um, yeah. dimming our, our yeah. voice in the public debate. Largely drowning it out. Absolutely, yeah. And it is, it's a strange thing, isn't it, that I mean, one doesn't want for a moment to, to kind of minimise the, the kind of tragic nature of the, the abuse scandal and, 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 the, and, the, and the guilt involved. But you compare the number of Catholic priests who have been involved in that with the number of Catholic priests who do amazing work across the world in terms of, <clears throat> of uh, their help for communities and people and the kind of level of self-sacrifice there is involved in that there's no comparison but of course all the all the attention we have is on the scandals that take place not on the immense good that comes out of the catholic churches and and, and other churches too so uh, i think you're absolutely right there's that sense of um these sort of issues which actually for most christians and for most clergy actually are probably quite small issues you don't really think about too much because mm -hmm. actually you're getting on with the job um, but they dominate public perception of the church and its witness. And, and I think where one deals with, with victims of it, um, it's a huge thing, and it's yeah. it's it's, mm. it's, it's, it's it's important we don't kind of minimise that anyway because it's it's incredibly damaging. And people, I think, part of the reaction I think is that people have a, a correct sense that. Um, 
they can expect better from the church. They've felt let down by yeah. other institutions. And it's doubly bad somehow to be let down by the church as well. Yeah. But um, also that there is something about the way that we run our institutions that actually isn't fully converted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That it is possible for our institutions to, all of our Christian institutions, not to one or other, but all of them, to, to abuse people who are vulnerable mm-hmm. um, is yeah. shocking, isn't sure. it? Yeah. But it's a shame that because of that, I mean, Pope Benedict. He was a he was a pretty serious thinker. I mean, he is he is no slouch when it comes Absolutely. to the to, to to a sort of analysis of secularism and analysis of the place of religion in modern life. But the chances of that being heard mm. uh, in the sort of the kind of general clamour against religion are pretty slim. It seems to me, mm. which is a which is again a sort of sad comment on the na- on the the level of our public debate on on things like religion today. Um, but anyway, so shall we redress that balance? Absolutely, <laughs> we are striking a blow for, for the quality of debate. That's exactly, right. that's right. <laughs> so we can do it nine thirty well, in the yes. morning anyway. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what we're going to do today is um, pick up on some of the emails that have come in. Thank you to all of those of you who've uh, sent in emails, and as always, uh, apologies to those who've those who sent in questions that we can't get to answer. We do get lots and lots of questions that come in, and there simply isn't time to answer all of them. But we have picked a few today, which um, look quite interesting to us and um the one we want to start off with is one from um someone called daniel dugan from arvada in colorado in the usa um and uh he says this today as i said the nicene creed in the service i noted to myself that the creed is mostly affirming things that do not seem terribly important to me i know that in centuries past people have been martyred for the words of the creed and that some of the many denominations of the church uh came to blows over difference of opinion around the creed. My point is that I do not get too excited about statements of belief. I'm much more interested day to day in how I might live, how I might answer God's call in my life and in witnessing to my neighbours in a way that means the good news is both good and news. Don't get me wrong, I'm all about submitting to my faith and adhering to it prayerfully until I have some understanding or come to peace. It's just that the Nicene Creed seems like it's affirming what's not at issue, like swearing to tell the truth, as if you were in court then putting your feet into starting blocks to run a race. So... Could you help me understand better how the Nicene Creed is relevant to the challenges of the church today in Britain and the US? Is there another affirmation of faith which is more contemporary or relevant? So um, many thanks to your attention and blessings on you all and your sacred eating of biscuits. Uh, we'll certainly, <laughs> certainly do that. So um, Nicene Creed. We probably ought to start with what it is, oughtn't we? Because not everybody will have come across it. Not everybody in their churches will use it, say exactly. it. Jane, why don't you give us an account Okay. Um, the Nicene Creed uh, was worked out through a lot of debate and controversy, not all of it good-natured, um, from, the, like fourth ours, cen- from the, the beginning of the 4th century to the middle of the 5th, uh, through a number of Christian councils when leaders of the, the Christian churches came together to work out exactly what we need to say about Jesus in order to justify what we believe Jesus does for us. So it starts from the fact that we believe that Jesus um, saves us. But what does that mean that um, we have to say about Jesus' relationship with the God whom he called Father? And that's the question around which the Nicene Creed is primarily shaped. Um, So it says very little about some of the other things that one might want to uh, talk about. Um, But it says a lot about the the, um, the, the unity between the Father and the Son in, in, in what happens in Jesus. Um, and obviously a lot of the way in which that's phrased is now quite odd. We, um, we don't usually talk about 
substance. The, the creed talks about the Father and the Son being of one substance, and that's a, a, a word that comes very particularly out of that particular culture. But, and I'm exceeding my remit here, just telling people no, what keep, I keep, think keep going, you. going we'll <laughs> carry on with the biscuits. Um, <laughs> but while I entirely sympathise with Daniel, it is Daniel, isn't it? It is. Um, uh, about the importance of actually how we live demonstrating our faith, I think um, unless, how, unless that is underpinned by some kind of um, understanding of what our faith is, eventually the life would wither away. Um, unless you actually have some agreed understanding of what it is that we're preaching, even if you're not going to go out and preach the yeah. Nicene Creed, you actually need to have that structure there, otherwise your f- the, the, the foundations of our faith will begin yeah. to yeah. wither away. And I think part, part of the thing is, that, as Daniel says, you know, about preaching the good news, but that was precisely what the Nicene Creed was there to protect, was mm. the goodness of the good news. Mm. Uh, because... Um, there were those who were saying that Jesus was not divine, uh, that he's not fully God. Um, and people like Athanasius saw that that actually meant you didn't have good news. Because if the person we meet in Jesus tells us nothing about God, does not show us anything about God, does not achieve anything of eternal significance, then there's no good news in it. So this is actually what undergirds the very good news that we're trying to live, we're trying to share. Well, it does seem to, I mean, just going back to the phrases of the Nicene Creed, because it does say, doesn't it, when it talks about Jesus, he's saying he's, or it's about the word uh, which became incarnate in Jesus. He says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of one being with the Father. And that phrase, of one being, the Greek phrase homoousios, was a, obviously the, the key phrase over which they they fought. And um and I suppose it was it, the, the the creed was really debating this issue of, you know, when in John's Gospel it says the Word became flesh. What do we think actually happened at that point? What is this Word that became flesh? Is that Word a part of creation? In other words, something created by God, or is it actually part of God Himself? And um, I was saying there were, there were those who were saying that the Word is created, and therefore what what became incarnate in Jesus is actually part of creation, <clears throat> and, and therefore. You can't really tell anything about God from looking at Jesus. You might tell, you might say something about the highest possible potential for humanity, but he doesn't actually tell us anything about God. And therefore, if you like, if that's true, then the line between sort of God and and, and, the, and creation is drawn pretty thickly. And actually, God remains a complete mystery to us. We can't ultimately know what God is like, and we're we're in the dark about that. We might know what the highest potential of humankind might be like or the highest potential of creation, but we can't ultimately know God in any real way. And Either know or indeed really relate to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know you're, we need to use know in a wider kind of sense. It's not just about head knowledge. It's about how we live in the world. Mm. Exactly. How we encounter. Okay, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Arius was one of the key figures here, who was a Alexandrian priest, I think, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah. He was. Um, who... Uh, taught that Jesus was the most exalted of creatures, but not mm. divine. And they, they had a kind of slogan that they used to shout at their football matches or whatever. They used which to was, sing, didn't they? They yeah. used to sing, yes. They made up songs. With it's a great, fr- great way of actually, you know, at the end of sermons, he would um, he would sort of make up a song and teach the congregation, so they would go out singing this song and they'd remember it. It's quite a good way of, sort of mm. getting your sermons remembered, isn't it? <laughs> well, got to try, try, try something. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But they used to chant, uh, there was when he was not. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. In other words, like everything else, he came into being, Mm. like every other creature. Um, Mm. There's a time when he began. Um, And that's why the uh, Nicene Creed talks about Jesus being eternally begotten of the Mm. Father. He's always been there. He's always been God. He's always been in the relationship of son to father. Uh, That's always been, he didn't, it didn't. You can come into mm. that relationship. Yeah. It's always been. Uh, and, and therefore, if we are in him, we have that eternal rootedness in the love of the Father yeah. ourselves. Mm. So it, our whole gospel does depend upon that yeah. eternal rootedness mm. of the Son in, in the love and relationship of the Father. I mean, the, the, um, I mean, the, the image I've always found quite a helpful one to try and grasp what the Nicene Fathers were, were saying was the... Um, the image of kind of what, what happened when the when the first um, humans walked on the moon. I mean, until that point, you know, we could observe the moon, we could sort of see it from a distance, we could look at it through telescopes, we could have a guess as to what it was made of, and so on. But we Jeez, we I always exactly. hoped, <laughs> so, but we didn't, we didn't ultimately know because we'd never actually seen real moon. And I guess what happened on the day when the first humans walked on the moon, collected moon dust, and brought it back to Earth, you could actually analyze it and look at it you actually had in your hands moon dust moon rock you, you could actually we can actually tell what the moon was made of because we had the real thing um which is very different from just observing it from a distance and that that conveys something i think of what the the fathers were saying in in, in saying that that this this word that became incarnate was actually part of god we, we have actually now seen god in human flesh we're not just guessing at it we're not just looking at him from a distance we've got the real thing and not that, something that looks like the real thing, but the real thing itself. And therefore have some sort of scientific control that you, by which we can test what we say about God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you actually look at Jesus and say, well, does it, does it measure up? Um, whereas without that, you yeah. can always say what you like and who can gainsay it. And it's a very important theme, isn't it, saying that actually you know, Christians say, I, mean, I think we say it because the Nicene Fathers sort of wrestled with this and got to that, that point, that, that actually God is like Jesus. Now, that is a very profound and quite striking thing to say. That if, that if we're talking about the creator of the universe, the one who's behind everything that is, the one that we relate to, the one from whom we come, what's he like? And it's the big question. The Christian answer to that question is, well, he's like, he's like Jesus. And the only reason we can say that is because the Nicene Fathers sort of wrestle with this and, and, and realize that that was the heart of what they were saying. They were saying something quite really quite radical about God and that God actually has broken into human experience and life. So we can know God, which if they hadn't said that, if they gone along with Arius and said no no no, Jesus is part of creation he's just like one of us in in a sense but a lot better then Christians could not say that we couldn't ultimately say that we know what God is like and I would guess actually Christianity would have ceased to exist I think Mm. without the the clarification of this issue we have uh, Christianity has nothing specific Mm. to say Jesus just becomes another great prophet Uh, uh, and the view of him would be very much like the very reverential view (laughs) that Islam has of Jesus, for example. And it does relate to, I mean, some of the themes you talk about quite a lot, Mike, in that, you know, if we can't ultimately say that God is like Jesus, then all we've got to to go on is nature as we see it. Hmm. And uh, then you might conclude that God is, well, there might be some good parts to him, but there also might be some rather nasty parts Mm. to him, because actually nature, as we understand it, is a very mixed thing. Mm. So over against our experience of the world, which is often one of suffering and and evil and struggle, that that might say the God who made this world is a rather devious character, we can actually say, well, actually, that may seem to be the case. But in Jesus, we've seen a different picture of God. 
that we can say, you no, know, we, we, we know and we can say that God is good. He is love because we've seen it in Jesus. And then Jesus, we get an absolutely reliable picture of God. And that does give us a way of life, doesn't it? It means there are certain things that we know uh, are not how God would like them to be. And it's yeah. part of our calling as Christians to witness to that and work against that and um, attempt to, to make the world more like Jesus. Mm. Absolutely. <clears throat> I, I think it's you cannot re read the goodness of God off from either looking at history mm -hmm. or from looking at nature. Mm -hmm. um, they are both violent things. Uh, and it, you've got what Jesus offers is, is a, a different blueprint, a different understanding, a different yeah. vision of mm -hmm. who God is and what humanity and the cosmos could and should and will one day be. So I think we're saying, Daniel, that this really is a vital statement of faith. And and the other thing about it, of course, is that the period in which it's, it comes into existence um, is a period in which uh, representatives from the worldwide church were able to meet together and, and discuss things. Yeah. So we, we see something of, mm. the, of, of the, the mind and the commitment and the faith of the worldwide church behind this Nicene Creed as well. But... But we do understand that you're probably not going to go out and um, this isn't going to be the basis of your conversations with people mm. about mm. faith. Mm. But what it stands for is, I think, going to be part of a basis of your conversations with people about faith. Uh, there are a number of other questions that come in that, that relate to this in, in a number of different ways. One is from um, Peter Stacey in London, good old London. That's where we are. Um, probably London, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's the real London. I mean, why not? Not that London, Ontario, is not, is not real. No. Apologies to those of you who are listening in. Ontario. Sound of digging London. to my left. <laughs> uh, this one is, um, was Jesus born divine? In other words, Jesus being fully human and fully divine. Does that refer to his period of ministry of around three years and post-resurrection or throughout his life? If it's for his whole life, why didn't he start teaching and doing miracles earlier? And what was the spirit descending at the baptism by John about? Or was that when he became divine? And uh, so on. So there's a, a, an interesting question about that relates to what we've just been talking about. So what are your thoughts on that one? Well, it's, it's, it's very fun. Or, 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 <laughs> this is not meant dismissively. You're going to have to be digging in my own. Uh, but, but all the major heresies of the church are coming out this yeah. morning. Um, Arianism was the first one. And uh, the strict name for this one is adoptionism, the idea that Jesus wasn't born divine, but he yeah. was adopted by God. He became God at some later point. Paul um, of Samosata. Do you remember him? Uh, no, I'm not that old, but tell us. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he was, he was, he was the kind of a, a early sort of bogeyman as far as adoptionism yeah. went. So, um, And you can see that there are texts in the Bible that do seem to yeah. lend themselves to mm. that. Yeah. Um, but and and it often has been... I mean, some theologians have suggested that something something significant happens at the baptism of John. The voice comes, "This is my son, whom I love." Maybe that's the moment where he, you know, he's launched into ministry, and that's when all the things start happening. And maybe that's when he became divine. So, and particularly because the voice saying, "You're my beloved son," seems to be echoing Psalm two, which continues, "Today I have begotten you." Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you can well see why that happened. Um, but, <laughs> okay. on, on to the but, please, Mike. <laughs> oh, yes, don't awesome. finish the Don't God Pod now. <laughs> don't stop listening now, either. Um, but th there are real problems with that. Um, basically, that uh, if that is the case, then why was he adopted? 
Uh, it basically means that presumably he was chosen because of who he was, because of his achievement, because of his character, because of something, um, not because of nothing. Uh, and therefore, it suggests a whole way of operating um, that is actually by merit. Uh, he can do it. He can be chosen. He can be adopted. Mm. Why can't we? Um, mm. And whereas, in fact, if it is from birth, if it is from conception, in fact, um, that he's just always been divine, uh, then it is all that we are is is by grace. We can be adopted by being in Him, mm. um, and and that's the big problem with adoptionism is, is it tends to be uh, to undo grace basically, and also works against um, the greater trend of of the New Testament, which talks about God's gift of Himself in the birth of Jesus from the beginning, mm. um, and uh, and that talks about the 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 person of Jesus as our encounter with God, not just what Jesus does. It isn't just what he says yeah. and what he does. It's who he is that's our encounter with God. People yeah. um, meeting yeah. Jesus uh, are, are aware um, that they're in the presence of God, or some of them are not aware, but, are, but, but the New Testament is perfectly clear that everybody meeting Jesus is yeah. in the presence of God. Yeah. Um, so it isn't just about function. It's about re relationship, yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah, about. and it, it is interesting that the New Testament does use the language of adoption, but to describe our relationship oh. to the Father, we are adopted as, as sons. And I think what that does is it gets the distinction between us and, and Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the Christian life, we are to to grow into the image of Christ. We are remade in the image of Christ, but we don't become Christ in that same way. He is the Son of God by nature, and we are sons of God, sons and daughters of God by grace. And there's a distinction there because we are part of creation and he isn't mm. that's the point it seems to me but one sorry mm. one of the things i absolutely love about um the new testament witness is there are all those years when we know nothing about what jesus was doing um yeah. mm. god doesn't mind wasting time oh. mm. um that mm. jesus like all of the rest of us grows up learns um uh, and finds out more about himself and his relationship with God, that all of those mm. years um, mm. that look like a waste mm. uh, are actually part of God's commitment to us as human beings. Jesus mm. lives a real human life. And it's interesting to ponder, isn't it? You know, did, did Jesus know he was divine as he was born, as he was uh, lying as a baby in the manger? Was he aware of his divine nature? And I, in some ways you don't know the answer because it doesn't really tell you. But I suspect there was that there was an element of kind of, of 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 growing into that awareness that that he was different uh, and different in a very particular special way. Um, so yeah, I, I, and, I, I, and there are those verses in Luke about growing in <laughs> wisdom and stature uh, and in favour with God and, and with people. Um, which suggests a growing development, just as every mm. human being grows mm. in their sense mm. of their own identity. Um, yeah. So he grew in his sense of his particular unique identity. Yeah. And, I mean, that one little vignette in Luke of Jesus as a child yeah. um, suggests um, a relationship with God the Father that Jesus took for granted and may have, I mean, obviously this is mm. reading into it what isn't mm. in the New Testament, mm. but may have assumed everybody had. <laughs> yeah. And and then and the more he talks to other people, worships other people, the more he realises that actually... What his relate his relationship with with the father is different. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, it relates to, to a third question, which um, came through from Steve Steve Brewer in Lincoln, which is um, 
Do you think God learned anything through his experiences as Jesus during his time on earth? Um, uh, and I suppose the question is, is, we might want to put it slightly differently, but the question is, when, if you like, the word becomes incarnate, when uh, God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus, did he learn something that he didn't know before? Um, then... Uh, the, you know the other we, we you know we learn as we grow part of our human nature is to is to find new experiences and grow through that and, and to, to to learn from it and as we've said a moment ago there are texts in the new testament that seem to talk in those terms but that seems a little bit odd doesn't it the idea that god didn't know things before the incarnation and does know things now as a result of it so um yeah as as with a lot of Good theological questions, and this is a good theological question. Um, the answer has kind of got to be yes and no, I think, in some ways. Um, I think it's got to be no in the sense that uh, God knows everything. God's omniscient. He's not going to learn a whole lot of new facts. Uh, good heavens, I never never knew about the umbilical cord. How strange. Um, God knows that kind of thing. Um, Orange juice tastes nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, having said that, there is a difference between knowing facts and knowing in this kind of more personal, relational, subjective way. Uh, and I think for God to be the subject of limitation, pain, exhaustion, tiredness, rejection, hurt, well, probably not rejection and hurt. They probably he's probably had plenty of awareness of those. Um, there is something new about being the subject of that. Um, there is something about it being first-hand, personal. Um, him being passive, having things done to him, and ultimately on the cross, I think there's a there must have been a new experience of what shame feels like if he's taking the sins of the world upon himself, then that's going to be a new experience for God to, to, to feel no experience, sin, shame, that sort of thing. But Jane, I think, Jane is might frowning. not agree. Well, I mean, I, 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 I sort of agree with the sense of what you're saying. I just don't actually think that, that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, well, we know neither, I don't. And neither do I, of course, <laughs> um, importantly. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely clear that, that the human Jesus uh, grows, changes, experiences things as we do. That's what the, the, that's what the Christian creeds say, that in his humanity, Jesus is exactly like us. But you will remember at the end of the process that um, brings us the Nicene Creed, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, a very complex statement is made which says that Jesus is exactly like us in his humanity and exactly like God in his divinity and that humanity and divinity in Jesus exist without change, without separation, without division and without confusion. So neither changes the other. God being Jesus does not change the humanity of Jesus, and Jesus being God does not change the divinity of God. Because otherwise, Jesus is a sort of third category of existence. He's something that's a confusion of God and human. He's not really human like us. He's not really God like God. So whatever is happening in Jesus is not, I think importantly, doctrinally, for the sake of our salvation and our good news, is not changing God. 
Otherwise, it isn't God who's at work in Jesus. And I would want to say, and I, I will give you a chance to come That's back. That's right. Um, is that if God is, um, whatever your conception of eternity is, um, that is God's nature, eternal. What happens in Jesus is in time um, and is in some sense, importantly, already n part of God. So God doesn't. God isn't in t the time stream as we are. So God doesn't suddenly become Jesus and stop being Jesus or whatever. Um, what what happens in Jesus is eternally part of the nature and being of God, and therefore does not change him. I would say. Yep, I I, I don't disagree with most of that. <laughs> um, I, I agree that Jesus doesn't change God, but he does change our perception of God, our understanding so of us, God, yes. well, and, and our perception of who God is and what God is like. And it's important, that I think, that we don't bring ideas of God um, that we then put, try and fit Jesus into. He, he, in a sense, has got to change our categories of, of who God is. Absolutely. And, yeah. and if we have a sense of God being incapable of uh, being affected, being influence being acted on being um uh, you know may in any way passive to us then that's very difficult to square with the person of jesus um and i just wonder whether that isn't one of the categories of god that we got to allow jesus to challenge and to change or or it becomes difficult to see how jesus reveals god and um, michael ramsey um, the, 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 one of the former archbishops of Canterbury said, God is Christ-like and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. Mm. If that's what you're saying, then yes, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Brings us back to Nicaea, which is exactly what they were saying. And mm. I suppose it's, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because after Nicaea, the big debate that happened running up to the Council of Chalcedon and in sort of early 5th century and so on. Uh, I do remember the date. <laughs> <laughs> but the only was, date I ever do exactly. remember. <laughs> was this thing of, you know, how do you, how do you put together the divinity and the humanity mm. of Christ? How do you understand the relationship between those two things? If if Jesus is, is divine, he shares the same nature as, as God, how do you then make sense of the fact that he is both human and, and divine? And, of course, there were two ways of doing that. One which said that, well, you, you keep the two quite separate, so that divinity and humanity are present in Jesus, but they're quite separate and they're not affected by one another. The other way was to sort of um, to, to, to blend them together, to say that he is a sort of um, conglomeration of the two, and, and, and you, you imagine the two being uh, you know, inseparable in, in a sense. And I suppose Chalcedon kind of has a little bit of both in it, it seems to me. Um, it has a, a bit of saying, well, well, yes, it's important that we that you know he's not, as you say, Jane, a sort of third category, neither divine nor human, but something slightly separate. Um, but at the same time, I suppose there's always been that theme in Christian theology of the communication of attributes. This idea that you know what you can say of Jesus as God and Jesus as uh, as man, you have to be able to say the same same things. And, and I suppose what I mean, I sometimes think that what Chalcedon was saying was that well. The truth is somewhere in here. It doesn't try to define it exactly and say this is it in precise verbal form, but it's somewhere between these two positions. We neither want to say that um, that Jesus' divinity and humanity don't have any impact on, on one another whatsoever, and that what we can say as Jesus is human does not also affect in some ways what we say of him as, a, as God. But neither do we want to think of him as a of a sort of third category that's different. Um, 
And, and ultimately, leads, it leads it leads us to say that that element of how the two belong together in Christ is ultimately a little bit of a mystery to us, something mm. we cannot quite precisely say in language, and we which is not surprising if that's the absolutely. way this is. And we don't want to say, looking at Jesus, oh, the divine bit did that and the human bit did that. Yeah. No. Mm. Jesus is a, a whole person. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not sure that I that I'm happy with Mike saying that God is in some sense passive to us, if that is what you said. Mm. Um, because I think even when um, in the Gospels people think they are and certainly are doing something desperate to Jesus, i.e. nailing him on the cross, that becomes a source of God's mm. extraordinary activity. Mm. I think um, I, I utterly see that, yeah. that, that we have to say that the coming of Jesus revolutionizes all our preconceptions about what God ought and ought not to be like. And that's a seriously important thing to say. But but equally, I think we can go in the other direction and, and anthropomorphize God in a way that allows us then to become quite sloppy um, in what we say about God. There's that sense in throughout the story of the crucifixion that, yes, in one sense, Jesus is the passive one. He's being acted upon. But you get that deeper sense that mm. actually he's the one who's controlling the whole thing. Mm. That actually this is a, this is working out according to the plan of God. He is the he is the one who's directing. It's not a sort of chance series of events where God is just purely passive. But if God, if the Holy Spirit can be grieved, then what we do can make some impact upon God. Mm. Um, it's not that we are irrelevant to Him, and it seems to me that that is part of what we learn. Mm both from mm. texts about not grieving the Holy Spirit, but also from the Incarnation. We are not irrelevant to him. Mm. What, mm. Absolutely. How we respond matters. Um, and therefore, we mustn't have a view of God that is so remote, detached, independent, self-sufficient as to, be, as to make us remote or irrelevant to him. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's one of the ways in which... Um, the incarnation shapes our view of who God is. There's a, and you, you won't like this bit either, Jane. <laughs> but um, Charles Hartshorn. I'm just going to unplug your microphone. Before he answers any more heresy. That's all we got time for today. <laughs> uh, Charles Hartshorn, who um, was a 20th century theologian, a lot of whose stuff I didn't agree with, but he does talk about um, supposing you played a Mozart symphony to a stone to a dog and to a human being, um, it would have very little effect on the stone. It might have some effect on uh, the dog, particularly the, the dog in Oxford who sits with um, the busker and s joins in singing at various <laughs> points. It might have joined in singing or something with the, with the Mozart. Uh, but it'll have most impact upon the human being. So the kind of greater the being, the more it is impacted upon by other things. And I think we sometimes have a view that God is least, because he's the greatest being, he's least impacted upon. Well, I wonder whether we need to rethink that um, in the light both of that analogy, but also of the incarnation and, and the cross. But the problem with that analogy is that dogs, stones and human beings are all created beings within the, the time um, frame, without, within the created universe with its um, constructs, with its limitations god is not a, a a thing in the created world he's not and therefore we don't actually know what we're talking about precisely <laughs> no we don't That's which is a, again true. back to, to nicaea why 
the, the full revelation of God in Jesus is so important because otherwise we would simply be talking in a void mm. and God has, um, out of utter grace, given us means so that we're not talking completely in a void. But we still, I think, have to remember that our language is never going to make very much sense I, I, of God. I, I think that's right. But then there is also the whole business of God's love that he has chosen to love us. He's chosen that we should matter to him. He's chosen to be... A f- you know, by co- to, to love us and therefore to be affected by whether we reject him, love him, please him, grieve him. And that's what the, the other aspect of this is we talked quite a bit about how the, the incarnation gives us a picture of God and, and shows us God and in some ways maybe changes our view of God and we have to kind of see God through the lens of Christ. I guess the other aspect to it, and it also relates to this issue of how the divinity and humanity in Christ are related, that it, it does give us a different picture of humanity. Mm. And that's, mm. I think, a, a key idea here is this idea of, uh, of humanity is made in the image of, of God. And that what we see in, again, it's back to Nicaea, what, one of the things that it, it preserves for us is, is this idea that in Jesus we don't just see God as he truly is. We actually see humankind as it mm. truly is or right. as it was truly meant to be. And, um, and in a sense, I, I think you know, the way in which some of the puzzles are, are resolved is is by this insight that that actually when you think of of Jesus the man and you think of him as full of grace and, and truth and kindness and goodness and mercy and forgiveness and all of those things uh, and then we ask you know what are the qualities that make God who he is <clears throat> we end up saying that the qualities that make God who he truly is are also love mercy forgiveness kindness Goodness. So there's a sense in which humanity and divinity kind of come together, hmm. which is what we mean when we say humanity is made in the image of, of God. And that's what we are meant to, 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 to become. And that with Christ in us through the Holy Spirit, that is our sort of destiny as human beings. That's our calling uh, to grow into that same image of God. So ultimately, we're not saying the same thing when we talk about humanity and divinity, because we're talking about the creator and the creation. But they're not too entirely separate things no, and so it, it makes sense to say that when you know jesus is fully human precisely because he's fully god not despite i mean i think i think that's right and i think possibly i might even be able to say something that jane agrees with, agrees with here <laughs> you never know um, that uh if jesus is both divine and human then divinity and humanity are not mutually incompatible yeah. categories yeah. and if we have views of them that make them incompatible then we've got to rethink those categories in the light of the fact of the incarnation. Uh, and one ex- good example seems to me um, the humility of God. It's quite interesting that humility was not one of the great pagan virtues. Most of the kind of list of virtues in the New Testament um, are there in all the pagan writers as well. Humility kind of isn't. Mm. And it's also an un- not what you'd expect of God. <laughs> and yet the incarnation has actually changed our view of who God is, that he is humble, and our view of what human beings should ideally be, that we are humble and therefore don't know what we're talking about. I do agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that conclusion, that we have no idea what we're talking about. Um, we all agree on that. To, uh, to draw this to a close. So um, thank you very much to all those who sent in questions, um, particularly to Daniel and to Peter and to Steve. And um, So uh, we will get back to eating our jammy dodgers. 
on the um, table here. Or another pl- product placement. That's a kind of biscuit for those who are not um, uh, yeah. English. I don't know if Jammy Dodgers exist in other yeah. parts of the world. <laughs> a baseball team or something. <laughs> so, um, uh, Michael, very nice to see you, see you this morning. Yeah, it's very nice for you to see me. Of course, they can't see me, which is yeah, even, even nicer for them. This is a relief. <laughs> and, uh, and you too, Jane. Great questions. Thank you. Good. Well, um, uh, we will no doubt um, be back again for another Gold Pond before too long. And uh, so um, goodbye from all of us. Bye. Bye. That was God Pod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.